Israel continues to attack Gaza, to attack uh, Hamas, and the airstrikes continue, uh, and pretty soon uh, the ground invasion uh, may follow. People over the, the world protest against that and accuse Israel of violating the international law of killing innocent civilians. They call it collective punishment and say that Israel doesn't have a right to do so. So what ethical consider considerations should Israel take into account in its pursuit to defeat Hamas? This is another episode in our mini-series on the conflict in the Middle East. And today we want to talk about the morality of self-defense from a perspective of Iran's philosophy, uh, objectivism. And we've already done one episode on this topic, so this is a continuation. I'm Zimo Goen, a junior fellow at ARI, and today I will be interviewing Ben Bayer, fellow and director of content at ARI. Ben, hi. Hi, Zimo. So let's maybe start with an with an overview. Could you say in a few in a few sentences? What is the objectivist position on the justifiability of the death of innocence in war? Yeah, this is uh, something that we've been arguing for at length elsewhere. As you mentioned, uh, my my colleague Ankar Gatte already did an episode on it. He has an article on the topic that we'll advertise at the end of the show. But just to give a recap, the the issue here is that war is hell. It is not a uh, civilized game. And as a result, there really are no rules that can apply to it. The only rule that applies is that the victim of aggression has a right to self-defense. They have the right to exercise that self-defense to whatever degree necessary to protect themselves. And they don't surrender it just because of the fact that there are innocent civilians who might die because of it. One point that's especially important here is that many of the non-combatants whose deaths are lamented are not necessarily innocent. Uh, to the extent that they have played a role in supporting the aggressive regime, they bear some moral responsibility for the threat that, uh, it, has, that it has posed. Now, it's of course true that there are always going to be some truly innocent people in any conflict who get caught in the crossfire in one way or another. And the principle there is simply that their, their death is tragic, it is an injustice, but their death is the responsibility of the party that started the war, the party who was the aggressor. In this case, the death of any innocent Gazan civilians is the responsibility of Hamas. Well, okay, but if we are killing people that are enemies, civilians, and people who didn't start the war, uh, well, the children, all the innocent people who don't, don't who, who don't support uh, Hamas. How how is it an individualist position? Grant's philosophy is a is a philosophy that stresses individualism, but isn't it the way you're describing it? Isn't it a a collective responsibility view? Well, we're going to talk more about what it means to think of anyone as responsible for uh, for war. And uh, it is the case, I think, that non-combatants can be responsible for war, especially if they vote for the, uh, for the government. 
uh, and bring it into power. But it's still this is still not any kind of collective responsibility. Uh, people individually make a decision whether or not to support a government. They make a decision whether or not to stay in a territory. And of course, yes, it is true that some people are innocent and are caught in the crossfire, but they're, we think they're not responsible for the problem. However, the fact that they die or are hurt in this conflict is someone's individual responsibility. Again, it's the individual responsibility of the aggressor. But to take a step back from this, the, the more important broader principle here is that the right of self-defense is an individual right. Individuals have the right to self-defense because they have a right to their lives. They delegate this right to the government. The government is protecting individual rights when it fights a war of self-defense. And again, the point here is that that absolute individual right is not surrendered simply because someone might be hurt in the crossfire uh, through no fault of their own, but definitely through the fault of the aggressor. And that is the aggressor's individual responsibility. Yeah, so maybe we should take a step back, and and so I so what I want to ask you now is, is is the root of of the right to self defense? Why do we have this right? Yeah, I think this is a really important question because it cuts to the core of the philosophical issue here that is at stake, and it's a it's an issue that really comes to the surface on this topic more than it does in many others. The basic conflict in moral philosophy is the question of whether morality is essentially about service to other people, that's the altruistic view, or whether morality is in fact about the pursuit of one's own happiness, uh, what we call ethical egoism. Of course, Ayn Rand's philosophy is that the conventional altruistic view, which is held by almost everybody, is wrong, that it has no rational basis, that no earthly reason has ever been given for the idea that you should sacrifice your interests for others and that that's what morality, that's what moral obligation consists in. Uh, there's no good reason that's ever been given for it, but because of Judeo-Christian morality, it has become the popular conventional view. And what's interesting about the right to self-defense is that it is such an obviously egoistic right. If you think I have one and only life, this life is mine to live, I shouldn't give it up because somebody is coming at me with a gun. That's an egoistic idea. And if you think you have a moral right to defend your life, you've got an implicitly egoistic premise there. And I think what's interesting is lots of people do recognize that there is a, a right to self-defense. Lots of people do think on some level that their life is their own, that they shouldn't give it up for others, uh, especially when it's literal life and death. And, and when we're talking about self-defense, we are talking about literal life and death. So I think on some level, most people see egoism is correct, especially with regard to this right. The trouble is when you get into these situations where uh, other people get caught in the crossfire. And even if in other circumstances, someone would say, yeah, I have the right to kill uh, somebody who's trying to kill me. And they have that view on egoistic premises. Their old Judeo-Christian altruism sneaks back in 
and they start to feel they start to ask questions about this premise they start to feel guilty they start to say well gee maybe maybe i should sacrifice my life for these uh, innocent people who might get caught in the crossfire and so this is why it is so important to get explicit on the issue of the morality of egoism on the idea that morality is fundamentally about figuring out what are the best means to the end of sustaining your life. Life is a conditional and goal-directed process. It doesn't live itself for you. You have to make decisions. You need a code of values and virtues by which to live it. That's what morality is really all about. And it's because your life is your ultimate value. And that's something that comes out most clearly in this case of the right to self-defense. Uh, there just is no reason why your life is worth less uh, than the aggressor who's trying to take it. But by the same token, there's no reason that it's worth less than some innocent person that he's put in the crossfire. And if you especially bring into consideration the point I mentioned before, that you can see that that still is a tragic and unjust death, but the fault of the aggressor, then the egoistic premise here can be really held consistently and I think should. Mm -hmm. So Ben, when I read a lot of voices who talk about Israel's right to self-defense, I very often get the impression that they talk as if this, this right was something that they're giving Israel, that it's not something that Israel actually has no matter what, but it's more like a international convention that it's more based on the international law or whatever the international community decides. What do you think about that? Can we, can we even think about the concept of right as something uh, that in terms of permission? I don't think we can. And what, I mean, you hear this idea very often in debates about this controversy. Israel has a right to self-defense, but, and then insert all the different conditions. It has to be, the right has to be balanced against the needs of the Palestinian civilians. The right has to be balanced against the demands of the international community, uh, often on behalf of the, the innocent civilians. That but is basically a negation of the right in question. It's an attempt to embrace a contradiction because what a right is, is precisely the ability to absolutely stake a claim to something. It's, it's the ability to say, there's a boundary I draw around my life and it is inalienable. It is impenetrable. No one has the right to, to go past this boundary. And if there isn't a case more obvious of, of what a right to life is, then the right to defend yourself when someone is literally trying to kill you, then we have no rights. And the term has become a meaningless political rhetoric. But of course, I think we do have rights. And if that's the case, then what a right means is the right to take all measures necessary to defend your one and only sacred life, sacred to you. There's no one else to whom it can be sacred. And any position that attempts to say, well, you've got the right, but it has to be balanced against something else, that's simply not a right. As you say, that is a permission. That is saying, 
some uh, government or international organization or social consensus or what have you doles out permissions that you can exercise only when by the grace of that higher authority uh, or God, you, you are allowed to follow it. But that's then not a right. Uh, the whole idea of rights that comes out of the Enlightenment is expressly in opposition uh, to the idea that there, there's a divine right of kings, to the idea that there's a, a, a divine right by God to dole out moral permissions. Morality is not about permission in the rights perspective. Uh, to say that you have something by right means it's non-negotiable, means it's unconditional. And so uh, I, people who want to argue about this position by saying they've got a right, but need to realize they're negating the very concept of rights. And if they do really believe that we have rights, then they need to reconsider that but. They need to reconsider whether these alleged conditions really have uh, any kind of moral authority over someone who is exercising their rights. Okay, so I think now it's moved to more responsibility uh, because it's it's one of the it's uh, it's debated everywhere right now. And so one of the positions that uh, that that objectivism holds is that the aggressor is responsible for the innocent victims. But so so a question that one might ask is. But how can it be that an aggressor is responsible for uh, people that are killed by me if I'm defending myself? So I am the one who's killing those people, not the aggressor. So how can it be that nonetheless, he's the one who's responsible? Yeah, this is a good question because obviously, you know, when Israel drops a bomb on Gaza, it is the one that is the proximate cause of the bomb being dropped and of you know people dying as a result and i think that's that's part of what makes people feel like uh it is truly their moral responsibility but one point to make here is that you don't judge i mean generally speaking in lots of other cases you don't judge moral responsibility simply by the person who's undertaken the most proximate action so for instance, uh, and this is maybe not the, the perfect parallel, but it, it does start to bring out the principle. Um, if somebody hires a hitman, now, of course, we do hold the hitman responsible for, for killing whoever they kill, but we also hold uh, the person who hired the hitman even more responsible, and that's even though they never laid on hands. So the... The principle here is whoever puts the innocent victims in the position where they're going to be harmed, where they wouldn't have been harmed otherwise, but for the action that the responsible party took, that is the responsible party. And so just like, well, the hitman wouldn't have killed anybody if someone hadn't hired him, which is you know, further in time and space from the actual killing, but we see them as the ones who initiated the action and are ultimately responsible. By the same token, the person who starts the war is the one who puts those innocent victims ultimately in the position where they are going to be hurt, where they wouldn't have been hurt otherwise, but for the fact that they started this war. And that is amplified by the fact that the aggressor of the war is using force 
They're literally forcing people into this situation. They're both forcing the innocent victim into the situation, and they are forcing the victim of force who is responding with self-defense. So this is one of the reasons why it's important to think about like who actually are the truly innocent parties. And in a, in a war, the truly innocent ones are the ones who don't, who haven't sponsored the regime, who haven't voted for it, who haven't spoken up on its behalf. Uh, they also are the ones, let's say, who could have left, but for whatever the regime is doing to make it impossible for them to leave. So they talk about Gaza as an open-air prison. And there's a sense in which that's true. But it's because God, the Hamas regime, for instance, is a, is a brutal authoritarian regime uh, that has destroyed life in Gaza, made it difficult or impossible for people to leave, if only by being aggressive against Israel, and then Israel has to build a fence. So they've forced the, the truly innocent victims into this position where they can't escape. That's their fault. And of course, they've also used force against the victim of aggression. In this case, they've used force against Israel. And it's true that the, the victim here, Israel, they could decide not to defend themselves. So they, they do have a choice about that, but they're still being forced to do it. Just like in any other case where we see force being used, we don't say if a mugger confronts you with your money or your life, uh, that, oh, well, you've got a choice, so you're not actually being forced. Of course you're being forced uh, if you do end up giving up your wallet. This is not something you would have done otherwise uh, because you you know that it's your wallet and you know that you were planning on doing other things. But they, they, again, arbitrarily pitted your interests against each other and forced your hand in, in the only sense that matters. And so somebody who's acting under force, who's been aggressed against, uh, is not responsible for what they have to do in order to get out of it. And they're not responsible for the fact that there are innocent people killed as, as a result. The ones who are responsible are the aggressors. So last time when Onkor and Ilan talked about this topic, Onkor differentiated between moral responsibility and causal responsibility and said that uh, while someone might be morally might not be morally responsible for war, they still might be causally responsible. And he gave an example of German workers working in Nazi factories, creating, for example, munitions or something else that is being used by the war machine, by, by the Nazi war machine. And so he said that, uh, that, that those workers, even if they were not morally responsible for war, they were causally responsible for war. And so the question why, and so this is, and, and this causal responsibility is not intentional. So this is an example of unintentional causal responsibility. And so the question that I have, how, how is it possible that this, that such an unintentional causal responsibility entail another's right to use force? So in this case, uh, this causal responsibility, this unintentional causal responsibility of the German workers entailed the, uh, for example, English uh, forces to uh, attack. Right. Well, one thing to clarify about his example about the German workers, I think, is I don't think he was even saying that all of these workers are 
not, are are only causally responsible. It may well have been that some of them were morally responsible. I think he was focusing on the ones who might have been drafted into the factories. And there, in that case, it's clear they're not morally responsible. They're merely causally responsible for materially feeding the German war machine. Um, but your question is about the latter uh, set of people, the ones who yeah. are drafted, the ones who uh, have no other choice because of the circumstances they've been put into, et cetera. And yeah, there it is an important question of, okay, if they're not morally responsible, why do we still hold them responsible, at least by way of seeing that we have a right to use force against them to defend ourselves? And here, I think it's really important that uh, here again, there are a lot of other cases in life where we, I think, rightly hold people responsible for things that they do unintentionally, but because they are the causal origin. And the simplest example here is you get in a car accident on the highway, and by definition, an accident is something that you did not intend to do. And yet, if uh, you know the insurance company always assigns a certain degree of, of blame to you, unless you were parked, uh, and the government certainly can as well. And if you don't, if you don't pay for the damages that the other party incurred, you can be sued. And I think what's at the root of this is is the simple point that you can't evade cause and effect. That regardless of your intention, your actions have certain consequences. And if there's a certain effect that needs to be remedied, it's very often the cause that needs to be modified or eliminated, or it's, in this case, the cause that needs to pay restitution. And so you put that point together about the unavoidability of, of thinking about cause and effect with the fact that people have a right to self-defense, an unconditional absolute right to self-defense. Well, if you really have that right and you really take seriously, it's their one and only life to live and they don't get a second chance. And so they've got to do whatever is necessary to protect it. Well, that means they also have the right to eliminate what other causes there are that are bringing about the effect of the threat to their life. That's whether these other causes are doing so intentionally or not. And, you know, I, can, I could flip this point around too and say that by the same token, like if you're an innocent hostage in... Uh, who's being held hostage in some in some aggressive country. You also have the right to self-defense. If you're truly innocent, you also have the right to self-defense. You have the right to use force uh, against the aggressor who's holding you hostage, even if it's true that in the course of escaping from being a hostage, you maybe hurt some of the victims of that aggressor. So it's it, it goes both ways um, if you're really innocent. And uh, that's just... But it's again, and that's then an evil that is on, that is the responsibility of the aggressor as well. Okay, I have one last question. So what you're saying is here is that so we 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 have been talking about explaining why we think that the free nation that is being attacked, uh, that is a victim of an unjust aggression has a right to self-defense and it also means that that nation in, in its in its self-defense is not responsible for innocent deaths 
And my question is, and probably some people will 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 ask that question, isn't it a version of the principle of double effect? So according to this principle, there is a difference between intended actions and those actions that are merely foreseen uh, consequences, but such that are not intended. So is it, so it's what you have been saying, a version of that? I'm glad you asked because I've always wanted to explain why it is not. Um, this idea of the principle of double effect is a principle that is commonly held and advocated, especially by Catholic ethicists uh, who want to make a case for the possibility of just war, but under the auspices of so-called just war theory, which at the end of the day involves a negation of the right to self-defense. Uh, we, we recently released an article on uh, what's wrong with just war theory, and I think we'll be publishing that soon on New Ideal. Um, but the idea that they invoke is there's, and the reason it's called double effect is there's, they say there's a difference between actions that are intended, as you say, and actions that are merely the foreseen consequences of your intended action. And so in the case of, uh, this is sometimes comes up in a biomedical context, you can justify, according to the Catholics, giving someone a lethal dose of morphine, who's, let's say, terminally ill, suffering great pain, if your intention is simply to re relieve pain, you're not intending that they die, but it's a foreseeable consequence that they die. So this is a, a way of rationalizing what is in effect a certain kind of indirect euthanasia, uh, but they say it's not really euthanasia because you didn't intend it. Uh, and it's, it's, it's patently uh, rationalization. It's an attempt to, to uh, justify actions that are otherwise very difficult to justify on their altruistic uh, and religious moral premises uh, using, uh, you know, by hair splitting. It also comes up in the issue of war. The way that Catholics use this principle, they argue, well, there's certain kinds of so-called collateral damage that are justifiable in war. So if you are bombing, let's say, an enemy military position where your intention is to destroy the combatants, but some civilians get caught in the crossfire. Well, you only intended to kill the combatants. You didn't intend to kill the civilians, even though you could foresee that some of them would die. And they say there it's morally permissible to use their language because you didn't intend to do the bad thing. That's And collateral damage is the kind of euphemism that they use to describe that. By contrast, they'll argue you can't justify strategic bombing which they sometimes call terror bombing. So for instance, if the allies in World War II decide that in order to bring Germany to heel and break its will, we just need to carpet bomb German cities so that they are terrorized and don't want to fight anymore. There, it's not just a foreseen consequence, it's the intended means to an end. You're intending civilian deaths as an end as a means to the end of breaking the German will to fight. And there they say that can't be justified. Now, it's, it's worth flagging that this was in fact a strategy used by the Allies uh, in the firebombing of various German cities in World War II, something like 600,000 people, Germans, died, which is, which is many times more than died in the atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
not all of those were targeted explicitly, but some of them definitely were. And there are interesting questions about whether that was militarily effective. But you could, in a certain situation, decide that it is the only way to stop the attacks that are coming against you by breaking their will to fight. And in that case, the Catholic position would make the war impossible. And in fact, there were, German, there were, there were Catholic philosophers in the 1930s and 40s, like uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, who, who made this very argument, invoking the principle of double effect, saying that the British bombing of Germany was not justifiable. I would really like to know what would have happened if we had followed her advice. Uh, I think Germans might never have been defeated. In any case, what's that's that's a kind of um, uh, merely practical argument. What is the moral issue here? Well, I think the distinction that they want to make between intention and merely foreseen consequences is is just an arbitrary distinction. And I think most people who think about this realize there's some kind of funny hair splitting going on here. If you know about the consequences of an action, there is a very important sense in which you are in fact intending them. You know what's going to happen. Uh, and there's, there's a sense in which you will the end, you will the means. So I don't think it makes a difference whether it's a side effect or simply, or a, or a means to the end. They're all causally unified. And again, this goes back to the point that you just can't evade causal connections. They are, they are metaphysically absolute aspects of existence, which we have to take into effect when we're making decisions. You're responsible for the means, you're responsible for the end, you're responsible for side effects, whatever you know is going to happen. And you don't get to parse them like that. And one, one example that I would give here to really illustrate why this is an arbitrary distinction they're making is the example of the drunk driver. The drunk driver is not somebody who intends to, to have an accident or to run into some bystanders on the, on the street. They, all they intend is to have a good time at the bar and then drive home. And uh, neither of them by itself is, uh, is, a, is a bad thing. So here's a case where somebody's not intending anything bad, but we definitely do hold them responsible and morally responsible, not just causally responsible, for the consequences of their action, which you might say are a side effect. But they're a foreseeable side effect that the person could have known about, could have guarded against by not having too many drinks. And because they didn't, because they put themselves into a position where we know they could have done this, we do hold them morally responsible. So that doesn't make sense uh, in the world of the principle of double effect. That, I think, is a good reason to reject that principle, uh, especially because it, it is, in fact, sometimes necessary to target civilians. Uh, as a means to breaking the will of the enemy. And if that enemy is the unjust aggressor, and you are a free nation who's, who's fighting a war of self-defense, you've got the right to do it if you have a right to self-defense, which I think you do unconditionally and absolutely. Okay, uh, so that was all questions that I had for you. Uh, thanks, Ben. We have resources that we'd like to recommend uh, to you. It's called Innocence in War, um, bit.ly slash Innocence in War. Uh, thanks for watching. Stay tuned for other episodes in this mini uh, series. One of the other uh, episodes that we're preparing will be about international law and its validity. Thanks, Ben.
You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.